0: Welcome back, America, to you at that music portends the arrival of the Hillsdale Dialogue once a week. The last radio hour of the week, usually, Dr. Larry Arn or one of his colleagues from Hillsdale College at Hillsdale.edu joins me for a conversation about something that is big, something that is lasting, something that is essential to the West. However, this week we have made an alteration. We are talking for the next hour with Dr. Larry Arn, President of Hillsdale College, because at the bottom of the next hour, a friend of his by the name of Ryan, who is Speaker of the House, has preempted Dr. Arn. So I want to talk to him about that being elbowed aside by the speaker. But first I have to tell you two things. One, Dr. Paul Ray from Hillsdale was our guest last week. He was much nicer to me than you usually are, Doctor Arne.
1: Yeah, he's trying to get a gig <laughs> <laughs> And then (laughs) Paul Ray is not
0: a very nice man at all. (laughs) So we had a great conversation. He was friendly. He was civil. He was nice to me. And then last night at a at a big fet for me at the Nixon Library. Five hundred people are there, and General Mel Spees, retired two star general of the United States Marine Corps, stands up and spends my introduction praising you and saying that this is the best hour on radio. It's my introduction you're even you're you're stepping on my introductions now.
1: this is terrible you know uh i uh I get quest you know so I go out and talk, and you know i I never talk to five hundred people. It's always more than that <laughs> <laughs> But the first question is always. Tell me about Hugh Hewitt. It's
0: driving me crazy. <laughs> well, you and I have the same problem. Our audiences want to talk about other things. All of our dialogues are available at com. I can't tell you, though, how many people tell me their favorite hour of the week is this, this, this hour, and now they're going to find that you've been preempted by the speaker, which brings me to my first question, which we'll bridge to after the break. You have a friend from Wisconsin. I will call him an Article 1, Section 2, pal. You have a friend from Arkansas. I will call him an Article 2, Section 2, pal. And then you have a friend from Indiana. I will call him an Article 2 Republican. And the three of them don't agree on this bill, this American Health Care Act. So if it fails, I'm going to blame you. They're your yeah, friends. There you go.
1: Can't get my buddies together. It. Uh, it, it well, uh, so I got up this morning thinking this. Uh, I think that uh, look how hard it was for the Democrats to get the thing through in the first place. Months of trying, lost a run run-up, lost an in interim election in Massachusetts, worked every kind of maneuver, and did it at midnight on a Sunday night, having worked many weekends. And they had a bigger majority in the Senate than the than the Republicans have right now. So this is bound to be hard. And Trump's in it now, and uh, spending a lot of time on it. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and you know, so all three of these uh, supposed friends of mine you name, they all have an interest in this coming out well. And uh, so, I, and they can, you know, they have majorities in both Congresses, uh, and they can adjust it. So I don't know. What I think is, I think we're going to get to watch Sausage Made for a couple of weeks here.
0: David Brooks of the New York Times, Estimable Fellow, writes this morning, the thing probably won't pass, but even if it passes, it will probably lead to immense pain and disruption. That will discredit market-based social reform, cost the Republicans their congressional majorities, and end what's left of the Reagan-era party. I just had Ovik Roy, the smartest guy on this subject, on He said the Medicaid devolution and capping is the single most important entitlement reform we've had in our lifetime, 10 times as important as the 1996 welfare reform. How can there be that big of a gap between David Brooks saying it's the destroyer of all that is good in Reagan and Ovik saying it is the completion of the Reagan project?
1: Yeah, that. uh, well, first of all, hasn't David Brooks been wise in recent months and years? Well, he's, he's gotten many things right, though. Yeah, has he? Yeah. (laughs) Trump? Uh, Well, no, no, no. (laughs) He wasn't exactly right about him. Um, So, yeah, and that's right. We are... If we turn this thing into a source of stability and independence, instead of a source of dependence for basic needs on the government, that's a revolution.
0: And a huge thing. So it, it, it's an enormous thing. When we come back, Doctor Larry R. and President Hilldale College and I will continue to talk about the American Healthcare Act and his buddies and their disagreement. Why that's actually a healthy thing. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Larry Arn is the president of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. For all things Hillsdale, we have been having these conversations on Fridays since 2013. They have become the kudzu of the radio. They grow forever at hughhewitt.com and at hughforhillsdale.com. But the very great substance of Hillsdale, the online course is available at hillsdale.edu, as is the... Imprimus uh, News Digest, the Speech Digest, which is available to you for free, F-R-E-E, free, if you just register for Imprimus. Dr. And I want to go back to your your three friends. I remember back during the Balkans War, they convened a summit in Dayton. It was called the Dayton Accords that brought the Balkans together. So I'm thinking at Hillsdale, you could have your Article II friend, your article one, section two, friend, and your article one, section three, friend, come together and, and hold hands and kumbaya. This is actually not a bad thing, is it, that Tom Cotton goes on Twitter yesterday and says, one, House health care bail can't pass Senate without major changes to my friends in the House. Pause. Start over. Get it right. Don't go fast. Number two. GOP shouldn't act like Dems did in O-Care. No excuse to release Bill. Monday night, start voting Wednesday with no budget estimate, exclamation point. Number three, what matters in long run is better, more affordable health care for Americans, not House leaders' arbitrary legislative calendar. What's he doing there?
1: Uh, he's resisting. Um, so uh, the way the process works is uh, it doesn't matter in the House what the senators, Tom Cotton or anybody says, they can do what they want to. And then when it gets to the Senate, they can do what they want to. And if they pass a bill sufficiently similar, then there's this third step. And maybe, and one hopes, they're pointing toward this step. The Senate puts in the changes that Tom Cotton is referring to, and Ted Cruz is referring to, and Rand Paul is uh, referring to, to name three people who are influential over there and talking. Well, then it goes back to conference committee. And I learned this from my great friend, Tom McClintock, Congressman McClintock and your friend too, you. And, uh, cause he knows all about this. Stuff. And he said
0: yesterday he is warming to the bill, which was a big deal. Actually, if people were paying attention,
1: he's, uh, t- t- and He, people should visit his website when they want to know, cause he's a really interesting guy. And, uh, he, he, uh, so they take what's the same in the two bills in conference committee, and then they take whatever is required to be added, either from the two bills or not, to make a whole bill, and they do nothing else, and they pass that. So the point is, the squabbling between the two things, that's, that, this is the process we know as deliberation. They should, you know, nobody's, you know, we're all Republicans here. Yeah, so what? We've got to try to pass a good bill. And, and the deliberative process lets people say what they think. But then they need to bring closure to something here in the intermediate future. I'm not sure it's got to be done right now. I think the Speaker's going to come on in the next hour and claim that it is, and he knows more about it than I do. Uh, if, that, if he's right, then that means Tom Cotton is wrong. That the that the deadline is artificial but never mind sometime in the next weeks they need to pass a bill and everybody starts out by admitting this is not the whole bill and the reason is this is just the bill that can pass through reconciliation and I would stick in a word here for another subject and that is I think Tom McClintock, in the recent imprimis, and everybody should remember, he used to be an employee of mine. Uh, He's a friend. Uh, In the recent imprimis, he describes the filibuster. And the filibuster is distorted beyond recognition, and it should be restored. And if it were restored, you wouldn't need 60 votes to pass a bill. The filibuster would just guarantee everybody got to talk who had something to say.
0: We will look, people should subscribe to Primis to read that, and I am going to, during the break, send you a piece that I have in the Washington Post today about lawlessness as well, because we've gotten away from basic rule of law concepts, but I want to come back for a moment to what Senator Cotton and others are doing. I think they are negotiating the House from the perspective that the Senate really doesn't want to get a bill that requires that much work. They're trying to get a bill that requires less work to the Senate. But it seems to me that the House just needs to get a bill to the Senate because of this odd reconciliation process, which, by the way, they're not bound by under the Reed rule. They can change that. They can change any rule of the Senate. This obstructionism rule of 60 votes is much beloved by our our friend, the leader of the Senate. But I'm not sure it's a good idea. And this goes to what Tom McClintock was talking about. A 60-vote rule was not foreseen by the framers, uh, Larry uh, Arn. It was not their idea to have a supermajority. It was their idea to have the Senate slow things down and to be a continuing body as opposed to an ever-elected body. That would slow it down. So we've added a a hedge against the hedge that the framers did. I'm not sure it's a good one.
1: To the extent that you require a supermajority, you empower minorities over majorities. And uh, and so if you happen to be uh, in the crowd that wants to change things, that's bad for you if you get a majority. And if you get a minority, you can't change them anyway. Uh, you can only stop them from being changed. So the, the real meaning of this filibuster, you see, is it just points at what a legislature is for. What an executive is for is to act. What a judge is for is to decide cases between parties. What legislators do is they argue around a subject until they get some agreement about what the right way to handle it is, and then they write it down and pass it as a law. It is a deliberative body, we say. They argue. Well, the filibuster rule, as Tom McClintock explains it, and he says it's very ancient. It's much older than the United States. It's this, that when there is someone, a member of the body, who is there with something pertinent to say – on the subject, and and something that contributes in the judgment of the Speaker, debate continues for that long. But the idea that, you know, what they used to do is just stand up and read from the phone book, you know, for days at a time, and take turns doing it, and therefore the Senate could not go on. What they do now is just go and tell the, whoever it is runs the place, a parliamentarian or somebody, and the debate, everything just stops.
0: And, and, and so the, the question is, the Constitution commits to each House explicitly the control of their own rules. The Senate has adopted a rule that is contra the traditional filibuster, as Congressman McClintock puts out, but it is no doubt constitutional what they do. We have to persuade them to change that rule, yeah. because it's a bad rule.
1: And it, it's a bad rule for a lot of reasons. It's a bad rule because it's a bad idea, right? You don't... Uh, the check on the legislative powers in the Constitution of the United States includes several. One of them is there are two houses, so you got to get it. You got to do everything twice. You got to deal with Tom Cotton saying I don't like what the House is doing, and that matters, right? That's a check that should be there. The second check is the the president's got to sign it. Uh, the third check is the courts have got to uphold it or impl- apply it to individuals. So. The adding this new check that in the Senate to pass something you have to have a supermajority is is certainly not constitutionally required and, in my opinion, distorts the whole thing because its effect is not to increase deliberation and debate. It's to call a halt to it.
0: That, that is, in fact, buried within this larger question <laughs> of whether or not the American Health Care Act ought to pass is the question by which means it ought to pass and whether or not it's moving too fast. I'm not sure I agree. I'll talk with Senator Cotton about this next week, that it is moving too fast. It seems to me it's moving too slow. We've been nine years with Obamacare, and it's absolutely wrecking havoc on the individual marketplace, the small group marketplace, premiums, deductibles, and mostly, I think, on employers who don't want to go over 50 employees because they become subject to it. What do you make about the argument that Senator Cotton advances that this is all too fast and we're acting like Democrats?
1: Uh, You know, I uh, so uh, you're asking me which of my three uh, (laughs) do I side with? No, no. (laughs) the answer is the ones that says X and the one that says not x and the one that says never x i think they're all right
0: they're all right <laughs> you got to eat with all of them they all have to come to hillsdale let's talk about your friend in article 2 land who is very close to the article 2 lands number th- number 1 guy the number 1 guy is is in is active He's on the field of play. He's doing something that President Obama never did. They criticized him for eight years from being distant from the Congress. President Trump had a score of members down for pizza and bowling last night. If you can imagine it, what do you make of this?
1: It's awesome. It, uh, you know, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I like Donald Trump. I mean, as he's going so far, I, wow, he, and uh, that's his way, isn't it? I have a description of. Uh, Various people who went up there to interview in the Trump Tower, and the atmosphere described in the paper this morning is like that was. A lot of people in a room, comfortable with each other, not very much worried about each other, what each other overhears, talking away. And then when Trump decided that he was going to take the various parties that I have this account from into a different room, then him and a couple of people in Trump would go to the different room. And then they'd have a really great conversation of give and take. Well, this is the way free people govern each other, right? They have a long talk and they think about it and they, and you find out in the course of it, what will you agree to? And, and that, is, politics is just like learning, it's iterative, right? What you're going to say next depends upon what the other guy just said. And so that's going on, and, that's, and I bet you Donald Trump is really good at that, and I'm glad it's going on.
0: And when we come back, we'll talk about that. If you, did you like the movie Lincoln by Spielberg? Did, yeah. Uh, it, just, it, it showed in detail how legislating is not the same as conducting a war. It's actually about that conversation with any number of people over any number of days.
1: Yeah, that's it. And Lincoln was very forceful. The movie is a uh, uh, partial because it's from that good book by Doris Kearns Goodwin, who, who is you know, a capable woman, very much. But, it, of course, it's just one part of a really big story. Right. But it does, and, for a couple of
0: hours, take you close yeah. to what it must have been like. To be with the great man, I'll be right yeah, you back. Get that thing through, yeah. I'll be right back with Doctor Larry Arn of Hillsdale College. Don't go anywhere, America, uh, except to hillsdale.edu, Hugh for hillsdale.com. I'll be right back with Doctor Larry Arn of Hillsdale College. Don't go anywhere except right here, and maybe over to hughhewitt.com while you're there. Order relief factor, and then stop at the Food for the Poor banner and make a contribution. It is after all Lent. Stay with us. We'll be right back. There's lots more ahead, including the Speaker of the House of Representatives next hour will be joining me talking about the American Health Care Act stay with us Welcome back, America, 51 minutes after the hour. Dr. Larry Arnn is my guest. Uh, this is the Hillsdale Dialogue. Once a week we go to matters large. And even though we're talking about the American Health Care Act, the Obamacare repeal bill with Dr. Larry Arnn of Hillsdale College right now, it is, in fact, part of a very large drama. And the the way that it is proceeding is, in fact, a case in point of how the Constitution was put together. We begin next week a, a longer series of conversations, beginning with the Declaration and then working through the Constitution as it was actually uh, sent to the states before we get to the Bill of Rights. It's a little constitutional education. Because, Dr. Arn for a long time, and I, I've sent you an op-ed to read during the break, we'll come back and talk about at the beginning of the hour, lawlessness is set in. Uh, they refer to regular order. We're not actually remotely close to regular order when presidents are ordering things via executive order and various things are going on. This is, in fact, the way it was intended to be.
1: That's right. That's right, and, you know, this is, we're making sausage, you know, and sausage is good. Making it is not good. And it the, just think of, it, think of the magic and greatness of this, and then think, by the way, how much the media loses that magic. A whole lot of people who disagree are talking out loud in front of hundreds of millions of people about what they're going to do. And then later they are accountable, those people for the positions that they are taking. And it's not a deal worked out in the White House that a bunch of people walk out and announce, right? And nobody really knows quite why they did it, and it gets enforced back on the Congress. This is deliberation, public and argued out, isn't that good? I like it. It is. Now, I want to ask you, we, we have
0: an institution out here in the West called the Pacific Legal Foundation, which you know a little bit about. Oh, yeah. And there's a scholar there by the name of Todd Gaziano, and he's been investigating this Congressional Review Act, which is a good piece of legislation, which provides that any rule passed by an administrative agency, if it is rejected by the House and the Senate by simple majority, cannot be filibustered is not only repealed, the subject matter it covered is forever forbidden to that agency. You know, that would require the Congress to actually come back and instruct them to do it, to reverse that. It's a powerful thing. The House Republicans have set up 14 of these repeals. The Senate's already moved on three of them. That's terrific stuff. They're having a debate over what it means about how far back you can go. Does it seem to you that they ought to press that envelope, Dr. Arn, or take it as the liberals would say, oh, it's only 60 legislative days. You can't go back farther than that.
1: Yeah, I think they ought to press it. And, and the reason is, so. There's uh, up until this point this morning, we have been talking about the entitlement state. And that's one of the two innovations in the government of the United States that make it different than it used to be. The other one is the regulatory state. And the best thing that I know about Donald Trump is his aggressiveness about the regulatory state. Uh, You know, Bannon said at CPAC, we're going to dismantle that thing, or whatever he said. And so, and why is the regulatory state bad? It's because it permits, it unleashes avalanches of of, uh, legislation, and nobody knows where they come from, and elected people have little control over it. And so Trump has been strong about that, and in fact, it's been his plan to attack on that, and to leave the entitlements alone, excepting this one thing, Obamacare. And the political calculation in that makes sense to me. I, I believe that Paul Ryan is right, that ultimately the entitlement state has got to be reformed so it doesn't drive us bankrupt, and so it really does provide security for people. But Trump, Trump is right, too, and that is people don't trust Washington. And they think they're just going to take away what we get out of it, and they're going to keep what they get out of it. So you gotta be gingerly about that. And well, while I was being gingerly about that, I'd be hard about the regulatory state.
0: And they're doing that. Now here's what the hard I, I have a genuine question as opposed to a mere transfer of, of authority of the show to you. <laughs> uh the Congressional Review Act can be used as it is being used, or it can be used duplicitously. And uh, and I'm in favor of the latter, but I don't think it's duplicitous <laughs> because it's transparently duplicitous. And that is Uh, Secretary Price can put forward a vast rule, one that a liberal would love, just enormously confiscatory of the power of the state and of of, uh, the power of the individual and demanding that every health care plan include A through Z. And he could put that that out there with the intention and having coordinated with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, that it would be reversed under the CRA and thus that area forbidden to HHS forever until the Congress returned. That's a false flag regulation. Do you think that's legitimate, uh, Dr. Larry Art?
1: Ooh, I praise you for thinking of that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is kind of wicked, isn't it? It is.
0: It is very wicked and I wonder if it's duplicitous, but it's transparently duplicitous.
1: Yeah, there you go. There you go. I I I I said I was a cad and I was. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, so
0: I want you to talk to your Article 2 friend and your Article 1, Section 2 friend and your Article 1, Section 3 friend about using the power of the CRA. Because, boy, if they will go with false flag regulations, which they, you know, hoist the black flag and the skull and bones and fly. You know, I'm coming back one more segment with Dr. Larry Aaron to talk about lawlessness. I wasn't just talking about lawlessness. I was talking about transparent duplicity. I'm coming back to talk about lawlessness. There's a difference. Stay tuned, Dr. Arn. We'll be back on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on this Friday morning, the last radio hour of the week is a little bit different this week. Typically, it is all devoted to the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale available at hillsdale.edu. All of these dialogues dating back to 2013 available at hugh4hillsdale.com. And, of course, the free speech digest in Primus, which includes a very compelling argument about the filibuster by Congressman Tom McClintock this very month, is yours for the taking if you register for it at hillsdale. And you ought to go and do that. But I wanted to use our last segment today because the Speaker of the House of Representatives coming up later in the hour to talk with Dr. Arne about me. Actually, about a piece that I have written for the Washington Post, because I am perturbed by lawlessness, non-constitutional action at the local level with sanctuary cities, at the state level by passing the legalization of marijuana contra federal law and the supremacy clause, and at the federal level where they feel completely without uh, pause not to build a fence they promised to build, which is one kind of duplicity. And then when the Congress passes the Export-Import Bank not to staff it so that it operates Rates. Dr. Arnn, what do you make of my overall, our overall argument and those four specific examples?
1: Uh, well, it's uh, such an important thing. Um, the rule of law is the first principle of civilization. Uh, the rule of law only means that the law apply to everyone, uh, the strong and the weak alike, and that it is enforced and simple to understand and the breakdowns are just as you say and there are others which is what makes it so hard to fix there are so many laws now that no one knows what they are and they are written in a way so that you can't it's somebody's judgment what they actually say and to get to the bottom so in it is so let's say you're a regulator right which <laughs> the chances are you are <laughs> then, uh, then the law, you've got this, like in education, for example, there's this five, four-, five-, or six-hundred-page law, I don't know how long it's, much it's grown, about federal student aid. I've never read the law. Uh, my lawyer told me with contempt that I would be unable to read it. <laughs> and, and, uh, and that he was unable to read it. And so what happens is, they have an expert in this law firm in D.C. that keeps the government from give, giving us any money. And, uh, and she is, by his report, the one who knows what it says. So you go before the Department of Education. The first thing is they're looking at a lot of vague stuff. And whatever ruling they're going to make about you, a lot of it is up to their discretion because the law is not simple. And then you cite these four instances of flagrant violation of things that pass by large majorities and then they just don't implement them they don't do them it just never happens and then other things do happen and once that sets up then who gets to choose of the things that are laws do get enforced and the answer is whoever is the most powerful Yeah. I, I, at the end of this column I ask
0: a question as for defenders of sanctuary cities, XM bank plotters, marijuana defenders and border fence foes, they should ask themselves, do we really want a government at any level to pick and choose which of the Constitution's provisions will apply today? That way lies arbitrary application of law. Once the law is whatever any authority says it is, the result is chaos. Let's stick with the Constitution as works since seventeen eighty nine. I don't think that's overstatement, doctor Arn.
1: No, and and you, you just, uh, uh, there's a really great Mel Gibson movie where he's a Massachusetts cop and somebody says, it's illegal to have that weapon here. And the cop, Mel Gibson, says, everything's illegal in Massachusetts. <laughs> I don't know that movie, but I want to watch it because it's true. <laughs> yeah, he dies at the end. Uh, it's a good movie. Uh, uh, Edge of Something. Anyway, he's, uh, when you... If the, you know, Madison writes in The Federalist, if the laws be so voluminous and changeable that you can't read them, then it doesn't matter if they're passed by the proper processes. That's a paraphrase. And, and uh, that's where we are today, right? It, 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 if we could bring sense to the regulatory state, then all of a sudden when a law was unenforced, it would be vivid, and people would be concerned about it, whereas right now, everybody just thinks of it as a constant process to find out who's strongest on that day.
0: On that day. That's exactly right. Edge of Darkness, by the way, is yeah. the movie that uh, Generalissimo just whispered to me. So what is the solution to this? I I think a robust application of the Congressional Review Act, but I also think that Part of the election earthquake, and I discussed this last night at the Nixon uh, Library, was a revolt of the governed against the governing, uh, not according to law. It's not that they're upset being governed by law. It's ups- they are upset at being governed by elites who are, in fact, lawless.
1: That's it. And so there, there needs to be a radical undertaking of simplification and also decentralization. If, if you just think you're, the thing, the point that you're illustrating by your article is one of the central points in Tocqueville. Alexis Tocqueville, Democracy in America, 1830s. He writes that people have a different attitude about law in America than they have in Europe. In Europe, if uh, if a citizen sees a public official, he thinks of that as some force that might push him around. In America. He th- they they walk up to him and think of him as a right, and they get to tell him what to do. And then it follows, he says. It's one of the most beautiful paragraphs in all of that great book. He says that it would never occur to the citizen to apply to the government about a public need. The, uh, the, every citizen who thinks of something uh, forms a committee, appoints himself head of it, and gets to work on it. Yep. And through this means... Americans get to practice governing themselves and each other. Yep. Now, this way, these laws that you describe in your article, I mean, what does it mean that it takes a specialized $800-an-hour lawyer to read them, and in the case of a litigation, there'll be 15 of them working on the thing? And that means the ordinary person can't know what the law is.
0: doesn't stand a chance against a regulator either.
1: That's right. And, you, you know, people trying to trying to run a business, people trying to raise a family, people trying to, run, trying to run a college, they don't get a chance to live in a domain for which they are responsible.
0: Or if you look out at the vast cities of America when they were very young and growing— Nobody requested permission to build anything. They built it subject to the common law of nuisance. You could not bring the nuisance to somebody. If you did, they you owed them money. If you put a pig farm next to a house and you destroyed the occupancy, the law of nuisance would control that. Now you have to, at the very beginning, since 1923, city of Euclid, you've had to apply to the government for the right to use your land. It was really the, the first break with the idea of freedom.
1: I hesitate to bring it up, but Central Hall at Hillsdale College probably does not have a building permit. <laughs> don't bring the Strike the tape. <laughs> strike the tape.
0: <laughs> it probably doesn't. And, and I don't know that that. Um, you're in compliance with everything they want you to be in compliance with, but regulators dare not go there, what a great story that would make. You could probably raise $25 million off of that. But I, I, it is a problem. People don't understand how much we have, we've gone from the Tocquevillian idea of do it yourself, on it, and the government has no business in it.
1: And, you know, if, if you just look at the political battle right now, the battle among the people that we've been talking about this morning is one kind of thing, and an old kind of thing. Right? It's the way the government works. But there's another battle, and that is, shall we be governed by an entire class of people whose numbers are ultimately in the millions, if you include the states, who make rules that the rest of us have to live under and don't understand? And Trump is proposing to cut that back. And they are acting, in my opinion, as a as a organized class to resist that.
0: And in in that in that conflict, there's a lot of people watching that mainstream media. I keep telling people this: Donald Trump has 90 percent approval among Republicans, who are generally were not that supportive during the election because they are they're focused on the signal, not the noise. He generates a lot of noise. Last minute to you, Larry, and the noise is not what's important here. It's the signal.
1: Seems to me that there's a direction in the man, and I'm glad to see it.
0: Oh, that's that's another phrase I will write down. You know, I, I, I begrudge you this occasional glimpse of, you know, you caused me to include the entire Homestead Act in my most recent book just to prove to people it was only four pages long. Bravo. Settled the West in four pages. Bravo. <laughs> I know. It's just it's <laughs> remarkable. Dr. Larry of president of Hillsdale College, thank you, my friend. Stay tuned. Your friend from Wisconsin coming up shortly, uh, Speaker of the House of Representatives, Paul Ryan. We await his arrival. Dr. Larry Arner of Hillsdale College, our good friend. All Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues collected at Q4Hillsdale.com. Go and binge listen.
1: You'll be better for it. Stay tuned.